I'd now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Ken. Thank you. My name is Ken. I'm an abstaining compulsive overeater. And I've always called myself an overachiever with a fork. That's what I did best. I want to spend just a small amount of time on who I used to be because we all know where we come from. Uh, I was a 300-pound man. I don't know the exact weight. Uh, I only got on normal scales, goes up to 300 and then hits zero. And uh, it was something over that number. I went to doctors for over 20 years, took amphetamines, took the female hormone shots, went to a psychotherapist in the East, I went to a hypnotherapist out here. I used the uh, Metrical powder. That's the original <laughs> diet powder that came out in the 60s. And my weight went down, then it went up. Went down, went up. Because I thought my problem was my body, and it's not. It's here, in between my ears. That's where the sickness lives, for me. I'm only speaking about myself tonight. And so, today, I'm somewhere between 180, 185. That's called a miracle, for me. There are many miracles in my life. I'll get into a few of them later. But most important is that I don't have food on my body today, not in my pockets. I don't have it in my car. I don't have it in my office. And I don't have it hidden at home. Those are all the things I used to do with food before I came here. I always needed it within reach for a fix. And the fix only lasted while I was chewing. Then I needed another fix. I can understand the word addict when it comes to being a compulsive overeater. And so... I'll tell you how I found this program very briefly. Uh, 1978, I went away on a business trip to San Francisco, and God was working in my life, and I didn't know it. I met a man at a meeting up there, a business meeting I hadn't seen in 10 years. His name is Stan. He had a normal body and a smile on his face, and I said, Stan, what happened? We were binge buddies in New York. We used to take the two-hour lunches together. He was as heavy as I was, and he looked absolutely fine, and he was smiling. And I resented him for it. <laughs> and he told me about Overeaters Anonymous. I didn't understand the first word. I didn't like the second word. <laughs> but he planted the seed. We talked for a while, and that was the end of that meeting that night. I had never seen him again since 1978. That's why I said God was working in my life, because we got together in a room in San Francisco for another reason, and he planted the seed. I came home and put the seed on hold. I wouldn't water it. I, I wasn't ready to share this with other people. He said, you go and you meet other people like yourself. I don't want to meet anyone like me. So between February and May, I continued with the pills and the shots and whatever, and he said something very interesting. He said, no matter where you go, if you open up the white pages, you're going to find Overeaters Anonymous. I found that to be true. I've been in places like uh, Fresno and Eugene, Oregon, little town Murray, Utah. They're uh, in the white pages. So I took a dare. I like to dare people to see if I can find out that they're telling me something untrue. I looked in the white pages. I found Overeaters Anonymous in Woodland Hills. I made the call. And God was working my life again because if a woman would have answered, or even a man, I'd have hung up. I wasn't going to talk about Overeaters Anonymous and someone who would uh, 
immediately know who I was, even though I was a stranger to them and they were a stranger to me. But I got a reporting. That's how God works. And they said there was a meeting that night in Van Nuys. I lied to my wife. I said, I'm going out to buy clothing. And I went to the meeting. And I didn't like it because I'm a compulsive know-it-all. And when I go in somewhere, I want to know exactly how it's run, what's going on, so I could teach someone else. And I didn't understand it. People were sitting there with smiles. They had normal-looking bodies. They had something called a gray sheet and an orange sheet, which doesn't exist today. We have a dignity of choice. But it is a guide to a food plan. And so I said, you know what? This is ridiculous. I'm going to do whatever they say. And when it doesn't work, I don't have to come back here. So the next week, I, went, but I could go to a meeting the next night. But my head said, no, you started on Wednesday night. You have to wait till next Wednesday. So... Uh, I listened to my head in those days. I went the next Wednesday, and during the break, I had a break of that meeting, I asked the man who had a normal-looking body. He was uh, much shorter than I was, about 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, uh, if he would show me what this was all about. I didn't want to use the word sponsor. That was too degrading to me. And uh, we got together and talked for a few minutes, and I would call him between 7.45 and 8 in the morning, tell him whatever I'm going to put in my mouth. He, and, and he spoke to me in clear English. He said, Ken... If you put it in your mouth, put it in my ear. <laughs> and uh, he was tough. But he was also a nice person. He was willing to give me his time. I didn't understand that. And uh, so I called. And the program in those days, at the end of 21 days, you could leave your sponsor or the sponsor could leave you. You were just trying it for 21 days. At 21 days, I had taken about 15, 16 pounds. So I didn't need him. I didn't need the meetings. I didn't need the big book, which was still sitting on a shelf in my home, but I brought it there after the second meeting. I didn't need anything, so we came back. And so I called him again, and we started again, and I broke my abstinence again. And that went on until November. In November, I reached a bottom that I never want to reach again. I think that's the best way to maintain an abstinence. Find a place you never want to visit again. And what I'm about to say to you will not be understood by people out there. I call those people the terminally normal people. <laughs> but I think you can understand. I ate for 48 consecutive hours over Thanksgiving, the day of the preparation, the meal, in the middle of the night and the next day. That was the 25th and 26th. I got up feeling lousy on the 27th. I called this man again. I said, Neil, let me tell you what I did, because I wanted him to hang up on me. Get rid of me. That way I can say this didn't work. I told him what I had done. He said, well, the next time, call me first, and then go ahead and eat if you want to. So I said, how does that work? He said, do it. He spoke to me in short sentences. <laughs> and so I started an abstinence on the 27th of November, 1978, which is now over 28 years and 10 months. And that's a miracle. That's another miracle. Uh, being able to smile at people is a miracle. Being able to uh, not have arguments with my family is a miracle. Looking at food and saying, not today, is a miracle. All of these things are miracles, and you get them in this program. I never understood that. I had to work something called the steps. I didn't want to, but my sponsor said, if you want to work the steps, maybe you need to find someone else, because I don't know what to do. I didn't want to give up on him. I wanted him to give up on me. So I took the first step. I had to write how my life was unmanageable. I had to list my trigger foods. A trigger food for me is any food that I like eating when I'm alone. 
because it calls me. It's loud. I take the second step. I love the words came to believe because that came later. I wasn't believing in those days. That some power could help me where the doctors that gave me the pills, the shots, the psychotherapy, the hypnotherapy, they couldn't help me. Somehow, there'd have to be some other power. And I got stuck on the third step. I did not understand what a higher power was. And so instead of asking, I just let it stew. You know, this is ridiculous. I cannot go on with this because I don't believe it. Until I finally said to Neil, you know, you're either going to explain step three to me and show me how to take it, or uh, we're going to have a disagreement about whether this works on my part. And we had a discussion how to read step three in the 12 and 12. I read it. We then got together and we discussed the powers that exist that were not in our control. And, and this was my very first concept of a higher power. I don't have any power to change the day into night or night into day. I don't have power to stop a wave. I can't, I can't make a flower open up. This is, all these things happen regularly, daily. And they happen from a power greater than any human power. I, start, I started to think about it. I still wasn't sure. I continued through the steps, writing a fourth step, and I'll say this, instead of taking through each one of my steps, I, I completed them very quickly. It took about two and a half years for me to go through, because I white-knuckled it all the way, saying, maybe I don't have to go any farther, I don't have to do this anymore, I'll just listen to the other people at the meetings. And that didn't work, because we have to take part. Action, I believe, is the magic word. I was told there are miracles in this program. I asked Neil at one time, what is a miracle? I didn't understand my being able to eat three meals a day and nothing in between is a miracle for me. It still is. But he said, just hang around and see what happens. And there are two very personal miracles that did happen. I'm going to share them with you quickly. One is funny, the other one's serious. I was on a sales trip in Fresno about three years into this program. And I had a lousy day. Business was terrible. I mean, I was turned down more often than a bedspread. People said no to me all the time. <laughs> and I came back to the hotel at 6 o'clock in the evening, and I was really annoyed, depressed, and angry. And when you walked into the hotel, on the right was a bar, and on the left was a restaurant. But I went straight up to the room because I couldn't decide which I wanted to go to first. And I'm sitting in the room, and I remembered the words that Stan gave me. He said, any place you pick up the phone, there's going to be Overeaters Anonymous. So I dared the program to work again. I'm going to look for it in Fresno. And I picked up the phone, and I got information. I got an Overeaters Anonymous line. I got a human being to pick up the phone. And she explained there's a meeting out in a town called Clovis, California. And... I didn't know how to get there. It was October, so it was dark in those days, that hour. And uh, I had to ask the desk how to get to Clovis, and I had to stop in a gas station. I had to get to this church in Clovis. I pulled in the church lot. The lot was empty. I sat there in the dark. I said, I can't wait to get out of here. And after a few minutes, a man came around the side of the building, and he turned on the lights in one of the rooms, started setting up chairs. And I said, that's the meeting. I went in. I w walked over to him. He had a little thing on his shirt. I'll never forget his name. It said Harvey. And uh, I gave him a hug. I said, my name is Ken. I'm from L.A. I did not have a good day. And I let it come out that uh, I've been a program. I have an abstinence. 
he didn't know what I was talking about, but I, I let it come out. And I felt better. And that's a miracle. The real miracle that evening was that I didn't know it while I was talking to him, but he did not understand English. <laughs> he was a Hispanic maintenance man whose job it was to set up the meeting rooms, the lights, the chairs, and then get out. I remember right after I hugged him, he left. And I don't remember the meeting of that night. I, I cannot remember. But I remember him. I remember his face. It's like burned into my, my mind. Stayed through the meeting, went back to the hotel, went directly up to my room, called my wife. It's now after 9 o'clock at night. I told her, I said, the day started out lousy. It ended up very good. And we talked, and I was going to come home in two days. I hung up. I got undressed. I get in bed. I said, I never had dinner. That's called a miracle. Something occurred to keep me from dwelling on the fact that I got another meal coming today. I was only angry for about an inch of time because I realized I'm never getting that dinner back. <laughs> the dinner's gone. It's gone. It's gone with the day. And, and I proceeded from there. The other miracle happened in uh, September of uh, 2003. It was a Saturday, September 6th. I walked into a restaurant with my wife. We sat down. I ordered a chef salad, and I fell over with a cardiac arrest. And that was on Saturday afternoon. I woke up on Sunday, eight days later. I was out for eight days. I had no idea what happened, but I saw the tubes in my arm and whatever. And they were celebrating. A nurse says, I have to call your wife to tell you you're up, you're awake. I had no idea why I, why I was there. My wife explained to the doctor who I used to be, my weight and everything else and what it is now. And he came over and he said to me after a day or so, he said, you know what, if you still had that weight on your body, CPR wouldn't work. It doesn't work on very heavy people. Because when they press down, you can't get the flow. And my wife yelled in the restaurant, though I didn't know it. I was out. For someone, to, they knew CPR. A man came over. To this day, I don't know who he is. I went back to that restaurant to try to find him. Can't find him. That was God working in my life. He got up and he gave me CPR, and it worked because I have a weight abstinence off my body besides the weight off my head. So I have to thank God for that. Who else am I going to thank? I couldn't find him. That's a miracle. So I go on with this program because it works. And when I find out it doesn't work, I may not be here anymore. <laughs> I, I still like things in black and white. I still like things to be uh, exactly the way I want them to be. I still would like to control issues. I still have all these games going on in my head. It's up here, between my ears. And I have to sit back and bite my tongue sometimes when I hear something, or just sit still when I want to get up and run. All these things because I'm not responsible for my thoughts, and I learned in this program that thoughts are not real. Feelings are not real. They pass through us like a cloud over a city. It rains a little, then the cloud goes away. And if I'm going to start listening to my head again, I'm going to be exactly who I was when I came here. There are other miracles that have occurred in my life. I drive down Ventura Boulevard, and I don't see fast food restaurants anymore. I used to go into every one of them. Uh, I keep food in the car, so I go home and have dinner, and say I have to get out. I have the food in my car. They don't call me anymore. It's amazing. My abstinence today is three meals, nothing in between outside of beverages, and I abstain wholly, meaning 100 percent, 
from red meat, bread, and sugar. And the reason is because I lusted for all three things. I mean, my idea of Playboy would have been the gourmet guide. <laughs> and I don't eat those things. I had to commit to bread because I was eating it every day and nothing was lifted. We hear about things being lifted from us. That was not lifted. I said to my sponsor every day, I'm not going to have bread today. Uh, somewhere between the first and the third, fourth year, beef, meat, was lifted from me. I don't understand how. I have a distaste for it today. I would never order it. And when we even go to people's homes, I can find something else to eat. I go to my son's home, and they're all barbecuing and having a steak. I'm having a piece of chicken. It's amazing. He doesn't even ask why. He just does it because he knows I don't eat meat. I can't believe it. Sugar's another thing. It's in everything. And then I remember we're not supposed to be perfect. Only in N.A., in uh, G.A., in A.A., can you abstain 100% from the action. But here I have to visit food three times a day, whether I like it or not. And there's going to be sugar substances in food. So what I have given up is refined sugar, the white sugar. And any product that has that kind of sugar. I eat fruits, that is sugar. And uh, that's, in a sense, been lifted, too. Because outside of sugarless gum, nothing sweet goes in mind, Or a piece of fruit, nothing sweet. I, I could never see me today where I came from. This would not be me. It would be a different person. I go out to buy clothing. I now get a size 38 for my waist. That's a miracle. I came in here with 54. I used to buy pants. I always bought two pairs of the same kind, especially if I bought a suit, because after six months, the pants would wear out in the crotch, and I'd have to have another pair because the jacket would still be fine. I don't do that today. I get a pair of pants, and I wear it. It wears out, I get rid of it. My closet was bigger than my wife's because I had what they call the Jackie Gleason closet. It starts with <laughs> size 1, goes up to size 102. And, that's, and depending on the time of year and how many pills I was taking or how many shots and my weight was going up or down, I'd have something in the closet to wear. And it took years for me to get rid of that. I finally got rid of the end of it many years ago at what they call a swap meet. A clothing swap meet at the OA office. I brought a ton of stuff over, and I said, fine, I'm giving it away. And I didn't feel that feeling again of giving something that was mine away. I have to give service in the program. I didn't want to. I wanted to show up. I wanted to do this like you go to an allergist. You get a, a shot in the arm, and you don't sneeze in August. And it doesn't work that way. Uh, at the meeting on Tuesday night that I've been going, the man, Neil, said, uh, how would you like to do some service? I said, well, what can I do? You know, I always looked at everyone else being so far ahead of me. He said, take this case across the street to a Dale's Junior Market, fill it with soda, and bring it back. And you'll sell the soda. And you'll take out what, what it cost you. So I did that. And that was okay. That was all right. I was afraid of the stuff of being a secretary or being a chairperson at a meeting, or being on the board, or stuff like that, or calling someone. I mean, my God, I can't, how can I call someone outside of my sponsor? And when it came to light that I had a problem calling people, he said, uh, can you commit to making one call today to someone else? 
and just tell me afterwards that you made the call. You don't have to talk about anything you said. So I said, okay, again, here's a chance for this not to work. I always looked for what didn't work. And this was baffling to me. So I called up and I got a telephone answering machine. So I, I left my name, not my number, my name, Ken. they never find me. I said, uh, it's a slow time in the house and I hear the refrigerator humming and I just wanted to say hello and I'm not going to go in the kitchen. I hung up. And I didn't go in the kitchen. Because I was told if I make a commitment, I have to keep it. And the feeling I had after the call was different from the feeling I had before the call. I was ready to walk to the kitchen. And I don't have to. I'm dangerous when left alone in my home. So today I commit also to stay out of the kitchen. Unless I go in for a glass or a cup or a plate. I don't mess with the refrigerator. And it doesn't mess with me. I can't get started with the refrigerator. I help my wife with shopping, but she puts the stuff in the refrigerator. Sometimes she throws stuff out of the refrigerator, and that would cause the resentment. <laughs> How could you throw anything away that can be consumed? My wife is normal. The only weight she ever gained was when she was pregnant twice, and after the children were born, she went back to normal. She'll go and overeat on a weekend, and by Wednesday of the following week, it's all gone. She feels fine. I could never identify with that. There are people in my life, I call them aliens. <laughs> They're actually family members who live far away. Some are in Florida, some are in New York. And I call them aliens because they don't understand. They don't understand, and they never will. And they don't even want to. They come out here and they say, Ken, I haven't seen you. You know, we're taking them for dinner, or they're taking us, and they're telling me the best thing to eat in a restaurant in Los Angeles. And they come from New York. And they say, have you ever been here? No, I've had this over here. You have to have that. And I can look at them today and not get into an argument. An argument will kill me, and I'll lose. I lose the argument. I'm not afraid of losing an argument. I'm proud to say that I, I can lose an argument and still survive. What I do is look at them and say, if there's something on the table, that's not enough for me anyway. And I can't have it. And we joke. I'll try to change the subject. Sometimes they become very pushy. And I'll look them right in the eye and I'll say, I can't have it. It's not good for me. And it's true. They may think I'm allergic to it, if I had an ulcer, they'd understand. If I had diabetes, they'd understand. They don't understand being a compulsive overeater. And you know what? It's not their fault. They just don't understand. So I said, I can't have it. My three favorite words in the eating season, which is uh, Halloween to New Year's, is uh, no thank you. I say that more often than any, any place else. Because wherever I go, there's stuff. You know? And I say, this is not my meal. I used to have a problem at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. When I was at work, they would have a cake at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. For any reason, if a woman became engaged, if someone had a birthday, if a man became engaged, I think if a woman even conceived, any reason, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you'd go in there, we'd see either happy birthday or something, wish them well, take a piece of cake with tea. And I made it a habit of using the telephone at my desk, calling. I knew it was coming, and I like to take part. I'm not going to say I'm not taking part. 
I call someone up. I say, I'm going down the hall to have a cup of tea. And if I have anything else, I'll call you back. And uh, I don't call them back. I go down, I remember. I made a commitment. I have a cup of tea. Commitments, by the way, can be changed. I can call someone back and say, uh, you know, we were going here for dinner, and I was going to have this. Um, now we're going over here, so I have to make a change. We could make a change, but I have to share it with another person. I can't do it on my own. So I sing happy birthday, and it's easy to pass on the cake. Then, my problem is when I go back to my desk, and nobody is in that room down the hall, and the light's out, and there's a cake sitting in the middle of the table. And I know that I can find my way in there and get whatever I want, and get my way out. And if it's in the dark, nothing ever happens. That's what I mean. <laughs> If anything happens in the dark, it never happens. So again, I, at times, I have to sit still for a minute and say the serenity prayer. Other times, I call back the same person or another person and commit. I'm at my desk. I'm having tea. And if I have anything else, I'm going to call you. Why do I do this? Because it works. I'm not pitching about anything that doesn't work for me. We all know in our own lives what doesn't work. I mean, because you know yourself. I'm, I'm telling you that I can pitch about what works. Where I used to never have a problem with food and told people, oh, I don't have any of that. I don't eat that. I don't eat that. I was over 300 pounds. What a liar. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. I say I keep away from arguments at any cost. I worked the fourth step and the fifth step because they came next. And uh, in writing... I was told very easily if I could follow the fourth step guide in the big book or to make it simple, write about everything that has happened in your life that you've taken part in that you don't want to occur again and focus it on three things, people, places, and things. So I started writing. And when I was done, and it took over, I don't, I don't remember how long, it was several weeks, and I had a lot of papers rolled up. And I wore suits in those days. So I had an inside pocket. And I always carried it with me. Because I knew if it were found and it would ever be traced to me, I could be divorced. I would be thrown out of a job. I'd be laughed at, which is probably what was the worst of all in my head. And I carried it. And then I remembered my sponsor said, did you ever get rid of your inventory? I said, uh, I'm still writing it. I lied. I had it finished. I, I, I couldn't share it with him. He knew me too well. So I had to let him know that. I can't hide anything. So I told him, I said, Neil, about a week later, I have this inventory. It's done. I'd like to go someplace else to uh, give it away. What I really wanted was to go to Mars and give it to a man up there and then come back. <laughs> Nobody would ever know. Because there are only two kinds of people that I never trusted. The people I didn't know and the people I knew. <laughs> so I went to a meeting out in Chatsworth at a temple called Ramat Zion on a Thursday night. I had never gone there. I figured that's going to be a whole new room of people. And it was. A lot of faces I've never seen. And there was a man there. I had a break. I went up. I said, listen, uh, let me have your phone number. I've got this stuff. <laughs> it looks like I'm, I'm dealing something illegal <laughs> that I want to give away. I'm supposed to give away. I, I couldn't say fifth step. I couldn't say fourth step. And if he would have given me my, his number, 
I would never have called him. Probably never. He said, the meeting's half over. Why don't we go down to my office on Ventura Boulevard and you get rid of it right now? That was God working my life again. So I went down with him to Ventura Boulevard. In those days, he could smoke in a room. He had a large ashtray on his desk. It was a foot and a half across. And he said, just read it like you're reading a story about someone else. So I started at the top and I started reading it. And it took quite a while. And when I was done, he, he asked me, are you finished? Are you sure? I said, yeah, but you know, other things will come to my head. That's why I never knew when I was finished with this. He said, that's fine. There's a tenth step for that. As long as this is your basic inventory. You put it in the ashtray, set fire to it. Stirred up the ashes and tossed it out. And he was just as nice to me afterwards as he was before. He said, you have time for coffee? I was amazed. He wanted to waste time with me because I was my own enemy. I didn't think anything of myself because I knew who I really was. I was not a real person. People knew me or thought they knew me. They didn't know me. So we went down and we had coffee. And again, that was God working my life on that night because to this day, from 1979, I've never seen that man again. I don't know where he is. But he was there on that night, and I was there on that night, and I followed the instructions of the program. I memorized over the years the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, and the serenity prayer. And it's because I used them, sometimes all three in one day, <laughs> sometimes twice in a row, because my head plays with me. I can still look at someone saying something that doesn't affect me and resent them for what they're saying. And I have to remember they're none of my business. I have to remember that what that person or anyone else thinks of me is none of my business. I have to just do the best I can. So I still make mistakes. Someone asked me once, do I have a favorite part of the big book? I said, whatever I'm reading. Because it, it all makes sense. My story, I think, is, and I think many other people relate to it also on page 36-37 of the big book. It's the story of a jaywalker. He crossed the street in the middle of the uh, avenue. A hit by a buzz broke his arm. Six months later, he crosses in the middle of the street, breaks, breaks a leg, gets hit again. Another time, breaks a bunch of ribs. He does it again, and he gets killed. And what I learned from that is I can't keep doing the same things and wish for a different result. I have to change the action to change the result. And all I used to think about was the result. I thought this was going to be a painful time, but all the time my head was getting lighter together with my body. That's a miracle. I go back and visit family in the East. My parents were alive in those days, 20 years ago. And they couldn't believe why I took off so much weight. Am I healthy? Am I, am I well? And I avoided argument. I said, I'm doing okay. I always say that. If someone asks me how I am, I always say, oh, good so far. And, and that's what I do. I learned to live in a day. I, I used to live in years. The ones that were over and the ones that are coming. And I don't do that. I live in the day. And that's a miracle too. Because my whole mental outlook as to what I'm going to do concerns today. 
I even tell my wife now, she says, what do you want to do this weekend? I say, uh, we talked about last night, we talked about Saturday, but I would not talk about Sunday. I don't really know what I'm going to do on Sunday. I'll find out when I wake up. And I pick up, first thing I pick up for today, I read it. Why? Because I don't want to. I want my feet on the floor and, and listening to my head saying, here's another damn day, Ken. What are you going to do with it? And I don't do that. I don't listen. I pick up for today. I read the message. There's some very important people in my life that call me in the morning. They call me a sponsor. I call some of them a sponsor because they get to hear from me once in a while if I need to talk to someone. My sponsor from 1978 moved away. I don't know where he is. I had another one in Phoenix in 1981. He is now in his late 80s and suffered a stroke, and it's very difficult to communicate with this man. So I use people, several sponsors, as, as sponsors, as a sounding board. And they say, thank you. And I remember, that's what I'm doing when someone calls me. I don't give orders. I, I don't give orders to anyone. If anyone gave me orders, I'd hang up on them. <laughs> it makes suggestions. Where they'll say, uh, try, you know, do whatever you're going to do. Call me back later, before the end of the day. I do those things. I still have a small dinner at home if we're going to a wedding and the dinner is at 10, 11 o'clock in the night. I don't eat meals at that time. I sort of segmented breakfast in the, within an hour of when I get up in the morning, lunch between 12 and 2 somewhere, and dinner between 5 and 8 somewhere. And that's it. I don't eat the other times. Sometimes I look at my watch and I say, oh gosh, it's 2.30. I, I had lunch. It's too early for dinner. I can't have anything. And I can't. But I love myself when I'm saying it. I'm not saying it so that I can go out and prove that I can have something. I don't want the hell that I had in my life before I came here. And this has cleared it up when doctors couldn't do it. They just didn't do it. And it cost a lot of money, too. And this is free. We give a donation. It's your choice. We have get-togethers. There's retreats for men, for women, mixed ones. It's unbelievable. It's an ongoing thing. So I take part on a daily basis because if I don't show up, I will never show up. I'll just make a U-turn. I'm afraid I don't have that recovery in me a second time. I don't know if I can get back what I have. So I'm very grateful for my friends. I'm very grateful for the big book, which I still, by the way, deal with the third edition because that's what I bought when I came in. When I give people pages, I always say, you have the third edition because the pages are different. And I still read it. It's all raggedy, but I read it. I read for today. I call other people during the day, sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes at night. If my wife and I agree to disagree about something, I have to call someone else up and say, we just agreed to disagree. And you know what? It's not over. It's not going to be over for a while. But I have to just sit back and let her know that uh, we're not going to get together on this issue. It's never a life and death issue. It's uh, where she wants to go on vacation compared to where I want to go. It, it's something that can be resolved. So I learned how to live in this program. I want to leave you with a... Uh, Adage. I pick up adages over the years, a lot of them in my head, uh, that pertain to program, even though they were not written for program. 
And this one was uh, actually words said by Henry Ford. He said, whether you think you can, or whether you think you can't, you're right. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Anyone have any questions that I may or may not have an answer for? Mm-hmm. Yes. I want to know how you met and married your wife. You were pretty excited when that happened, right? Yes. Uh, the question is, how did I meet and marry my wife? My first job out of college, I, I majored in radio and television. I went into radio. I liked radio because I could talk to a lot of people, but they couldn't see me. <laughs> I wore overalls. You could wear anything you wanted at a radio station. My wife was a groupie. She came down and saw me. We met actually in college, and then we lost touch with each other. And she came and saw me. I worked in New York, and we picked up the relationship. And obviously, she wanted to stay on with me. And I felt comfortable. But I didn't want to change a thing in my life. Nobody could make me change. And so we did get married. We have two children. And that's another miracle. We just had on the 10th of this month our 47th anniversary. That's Yes. Speaking of your wife, what do you do with your resentments? If you have to. <laughs> resentments. There's an old adage in this program also about resentments. It's like uh, taking poison and hoping someone else will die. I, I have to remember that it's only a feeling. The resentment's a feeling. And the feeling is there because I have an allergy that broke out. And it broke out because of what someone said. When it's a stranger outside my home, you know, I can avoid it. Leave it. When it's my wife, we sit down and I say, we have to talk about something. We have to talk about it. And sometimes we end up in agreement. Sometimes we don't. As I said, there are times when we agree to disagree. So I call someone else up and talk about it. If I talk about something long enough, it gets boring. And I never get off it. But if I want to act out the resentment and get even, I will be the one who's hurt, not my wife. And I can't stand pain anymore. So my wife, thank God, is a good listener. And I say very little, and then I say, explain what you're talking about so she can get it out. I think a lot of recovery in this program is getting it out of the head. And that's what we do. We have open communication with my family and with all my friends, it's, it's open. Anyone else? Well, yeah, thanks. So just share a little bit how you work Step 11. Step 11 was a mystery to me. I did not understand, you know, what meditation was, or even prayer, until someone at a meeting years ago pointed out that uh, a prayer is asking for something, And meditation is shutting up and listening to what comes up from inside. And so I had to learn how to meditate. My very first beginnings of meditation came from having to go into the bathroom, because no one bothers me there, close the door, put down the lid on the seat, sit down, and just watch the second hand on my watch go around. And take deep breaths. And I would settle down. 
come up with an answer. It could be a temporary answer. It could be a long-term answer. It's settling. Meditation is settling. I've gone to retreats. There was one in Phoenix where they had a uh, meditation around a pool at 6 o'clock in the morning. We all took chairs around the pool. And I could understand it is settling. Praying is something else. It's asking children how to pray. A four-year-old asks for something. They're praying they get it. And so when I ask for something, I'm very careful for what I ask for. Because I have to be careful of what I'm going to get. I have to also believe that whatever I get in my life, ask for or not, that's God's will. It's not mine. But he brought me this far, and so I have to use the prayer and the meditation. Again, for the same reason, I went back and started the steps. It works. All right, thank you very much for being here.